This is lip gloss misanthropy packaged as feminist manifesto. Clever but not smart. Cynical without being perceptive or particularly passionate. Women are angry for good reason. They also deserve better movies than this one. Stephanie Zakarik at Time Magazine. A rather damning review of Promising Young Woman. It is our feature review this time here on Cinephile. In addition to that, pretend it's a city. Seven episodes, 30 minutes apiece. It's Martin Scorsese hanging out with his good friend Fran Lebowitz uh, for entertaining fashion on Netflix. Uh, in addition to that, I just watched Night of the Hunter again. Props to my man, Scott Rogowski. People are wondering, what happened to Rags? Well, Scott messaged me the other day, so I finally watched that film, which is one of my all-time favorites, Night, Night, uh, Night of the Hunter. So I actually watched it again. It was on TCM. A great job by our man, Ben Mankiewicz, did a great preview of it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Night of the Hunter, uh, which is a movie I love, as I mentioned. In addition to that, we've got some news all over the place here. News uh, from the movie Mank, which is one of Joe's favorites of the year. I got a little news here on Sound of Metal, particularly the sound design, which I find fascinating. And also, just an explosive story about Johnny Depp. You are uh, going to want to avert your ears and eyes. It is uh, rather toxic, or as the article says, radioactive, when you're looking at uh, his career and uh, what Johnny's been up to, since it's obviously been a very, very notable fall from grace. As always, thank you for supporting the Cinephile podcast. Please go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. I rank my movies out of four beliefs. You can please uh, rank these movies out of five stars. Uh, we got this review here from Dano L33. Hopefully it's Paul Dano. You guys are great. Please review Promising Young Women. He put young women, but it's young woman. One of the best movies I've seen in a long time. Quite a ride of a film. Okay, done. You know what? You asked. We'll get it done for you right now. Promising Young Woman. Sam Surface was hyping it up to me. You got to see this. I'm like, I'm waiting for the trailer. Or excuse me. I'm waiting for the screener. I see it's on demand. It's like 20 bucks. I'm like, well, I'm still waiting on these screeners here. Kind of want to go to the movies to see it, but yeah, you know, what the hell? Fine. We'll pay 20 bucks. My friend Sam said, make sure you watch it with a female. It might be interesting, provocative. So I watched it with my wife, checked it out, and it's a, it's a really good film. It's a good movie that I think is elevated by what is a great ending. You've heard a lot of buzz about it. Ben Lyons had it in his top 10 movies of the year. I believe my buddy Scott Feinberg also had it in his top 10. And Carrie Mulligan's getting a lot of uh, buzz right now for a Best Actress nomination. I hope the screenplay gets nominated as well. Here's the story. Nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. She's wickedly smart, tantalizingly cunning, and she's living a secret double life by night. Now an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs from the past. It has been hyped, and I think accurately so, as a perfect Me Too revenge movie. The Me Too, of course, referring to the Me Too movement, which is women finally standing up to decades of sexual harassment and worse, in the case of Harvey Weinstein, rape and just horrific crimes. And so this is a story which is awfully timely and topical, for 2020, after so many years of men behaving badly and all of it being kept under wraps or hidden, shrouded in secrecy, now the secret's out. It doesn't matter if it's Weinstein or Matt Lauer or Charlie Rose. If you've behaved like this, women have come out, they've been united, they've been strong, whether it's Rose McGowan, Alyssa Milano, etc. Finally, women are having a voice and hoping to have this behavior stopped. In the case of Promising a Woman, though, this takes that story and really kind of upends it. The, something happened to Carrie Mulligan's, one of her close friends. We don't know exactly what, but now this is Cassandra's life. That's Mulligan's character. She pretends like she's drunk, hooks up with guys, and then just when something serious is about to go down, aha, gotcha. Actually, wasn't that drunk. Actually, I'm stone cold sober. Actually, you're a rapist. Look at what you're doing, trying to take advantage of me, thinking I've had one too many drinks or one too many hits from the bong or whatever it is. So it's an interesting thought process, you know, revenge done through this very cold way. And the story develops, okay, why is she doing this? Like, What exactly is the impetus? 
Why does she want to get revenge on these men? What exactly happened to her friend? And the story starts to delve into that. And lo and behold, she actually meets a guy who seems like a genuinely good guy. It's our boy, Bo Burnham. Fans of Cinephile know his name. Interviewed him previously, talking to his film Eighth Grade, which he directed, starring Elsie Fisher. I also met Bo Burnham at the Critics' Choice Awards, where I reminded him that I interviewed him. He's about six foot seven, so that was fun to have him be a foot taller than me. Great guy, though. He plays the love interest in the movie. And you say, okay, well, maybe not every guy is a scumbag. This guy seems actually genuine. They go on a date. He invites her up. Then realizes maybe it was a bad idea. She's obviously a little squeamish about that. Scurries away. And so on and so forth. What you start to realize, though, is what exactly happened to Cassandra's friend. And uh, it's obviously very sad and tragic. And clearly that is what motivated her. And then the story gets developed into intrigue. Because not everything is as it seems. Characters who may seem to be well-meaning are actually duplicitous. And I think one of the best things about promising a woman is it showcases that there's culpability with all of us. You know, there's people who think that they're seemingly innocent, and yet they are culprits. There's people who turn a blind eye, whether it's Connie Britton, who in a terrific cameo in one scene showcases how those in power, again, turn the other cheek. They are complicit by, rather than focusing on the victim, focusing on the accuser. Well, we don't want to ruin this guy's life. He's been a good guy. This was a mistake. She had too much to drink, right? Victim blaming. Well, you know, she shouldn't have been in that situation. They probably both had too much to drink. Oh, you know, kids will be kids. This is what happens in college. People hook up. Maybe she's promiscuous. All these kinds of things. And all of it's wrong, but it's been happening for a long time, and clearly Mulligan's character is sick of it. I will not give away any further details of the plot, except to say that uh, there's a hell of a twist, which I did not see coming. I thought I had a general idea where it was going, and then the twist came, I was stunned, and then with my mouth agape, watched the final 20 minutes or so and uh, relished what was a rather devilish ending. Some may find it contrived, maybe a little bit too convenient, a little too pat, the way everything ends up working out, but there's no denying the ferocity of Carrie Mulligan's performance. She's not an actress I particularly rave about. My friend Dan Stanzik is enamored of the film Brooklyn, which I found highly overrated, as I told him, uh, maybe I'm not an Irish immigrant, so I can't appeal to the story, but... I was amazed that she got an Academy Award nomination for that. An Education is also a film I was not crazy about. I think Ben Lyons also had that in his top 10. Uh, but even a real Scrooge would deny the fact that Mulligan is excellent in this performance. There was some talk off air, rather a bit of controversy, in that she was upset with a critic who basically, in criticizing the film, said that she was not hot enough to be this character. Uh, I don't know the exact critic who did it. I'm sure a quick Google search will allow you to see this story, but... I can't imagine why the critic did that, and good for Kerry Mulligan for calling him on it, saying, okay, so you think I'm not hot enough that I can't play this femme fatale because I don't have enough femme in my game. Well, guess what? Guys will hit on anything, A, and B, I do think I'm pretty, so screw you. Um, but there's no denying that, like I said, she's vengeful. I think it's a little tongue-in-cheek at times, off-kilter, but it's a performance that she truly owns. I also really like the script. Like I said, it's dealing with a very topical subject matter, but doing so in, I think, a really fresh and inventive manner. Ultimately, Promising a Woman is a film that I would recommend. Like my friend Sam said, it's good for a couple to watch so that the men and women can disagree afterwards. My wife didn't enjoy it as much as I did for the record. She thought it was a little bit slow, but did enjoy the ending. I enjoyed it. I think it's a really good movie. Like I said, I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. I'm recommending Promising Young Women. Young Woman, excuse me. It's in theaters now. It's also available on demand. Joe. It's uh, Dennis Harvey. Dennis Harvey of Variety is who imply that Margot Robbie 
would have been better suited to play the uh, the lead. That's who Mar- Carrie Mulligan called out. But I've heard this just from what I've read and seen about it, that this kind of genre bending. Do you think that this movie sticks to one particular formula or one particular genre? Uh, no, it doesn't, Joe. I think that's one of the good things about it. It is um, what they would call back in the day a woman's picture because it has a feminine perspective. But I think it's also got elements of noir. I think it's a thriller. Uh, it's certainly suspenseful. Um, and I think at times it's got a little bit of a satirical edge to it. it Remind me in some ways of, remember that Gus Van Sant comedy, To Die For, starring Nicole Kidman? You know, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek at times. So I, I do think it's, it's definitely um, nonconformist and mixing with different genres. I'm not familiar with the writer-director's work, Emerald Fennel, but just as I've been a huge fan of Michelangelo Cavino and his work with The Climb and saying, you know, he's a person to watch. Shout out to Claire Atkins, who loved The Climb as much as I did. Uh, Emerald Fennel is definitely a name to uh, pay attention to. I don't believe I've ever heard of a person with a first name Emerald. So props to Emerald Fennel. Not only a great name, but also a good movie. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I can't wait to see what, what else she comes out with post this and, and how her career will blossom because of this movie. Yeah, and uh, just a couple other little blurbs here. Uh, Peter Travers, formerly of Rolling Stone. By the way, longtime Rolling Stone guy. My man Alpha Hill and I would always talk about Peter Travers. Longtime critic, also an absolute blurb whore. Like if ever there was a guy looking to get a blurb in, I'm like, oh, that's Peter Travers. Dynamite film. Oh, one of the best films of the year. I'm like, Jesus Christ. The amount of times Peter Travers would call a film one of the best films of the year, his top 10 was like top 75. It was insane. Having said that, I never wish anyone ill will. I don't know what happened with Peter Travers. I think he got let go by Rolling Stone. He obviously made a crap ton of money. He's been a critic there forever. Now with ABC News, which is amusing because when I was at ESPN, I met with, oh, what was her name? Barbara Fadida. Me and Ben Lyons both met with her. This was after we had covered the Oscars a couple of times. And for those uh, new to Cinephile, I worked for the Academy. This is all because of Ben. Ben's the best. And uh, Ben had the gig, and then he was like, well, I'll get my buddy Adnan involved. Boom. So we, we worked for the Academy, and of course, the Oscars are on ABC. We work for ESPN. ESPN's with ABC. I remember meeting with Barbara Fadita in New York City, and Ben and I were saying, hey, listen, why can't we come on Good Morning America? We can be critics. We're young guys. We, uh, we think we're fresh, et cetera. Well, we already had Peter Travers in that role was the answer, to which I wanted to say, but bit my tongue. Well, if you're looking for a blurb whore, well, then Peter Travers is your guy. Anyways. Peter Travers now works for ABC News, I suppose, exclusively. In filmmaker Emerald Fennell's diabolically funny takedown of toxic masculinity, Carrie Mulligan gives a dynamite performance that should make her a frontrunner in the Oscar race for Best Actress. Again, Travers doesn't know what he's talking about. She is not a frontrunner. Francis McDormand is a frontrunner. But you know what? In fairness to Peter, maybe he wrote this review months ago. Uh, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Mulligan, though, I hope gets a nomination. Viola Davis is going to get nominated for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I do think my girl Vanessa Kirby will get nominated for Pieces of a Woman. That leaves only one nomination left. See when that ends up being. Tara McNamara, I loved her reference. Emerald Fennell's razor-sharp feature writing and directing debut could do for sexual assault what Fatal Attraction did with cheating. Scare men into thinking twice. Bravo. We can only hope a movie will help have some sort of positive impact beyond just entertainment. If it could actually change some uh, male behavior, that would be wonderful. One of the reasons I'm not giving it for me, beliefs, Joe knows I'm a huge Sinatra guy. That means I'm also a fedora guy. One scene in the movie, Carrie Mulligan picks up a black guy wearing a fedora. Afterwards, Bo Burnham's upset, and he says, I can't believe you're picking up a guy in a fedora. Like, are you kidding? And she was like, yeah, the fedora was excessive, or something to that effect. Fedora was uh, offsides. And I was like, okay, on that alone, I'm not giving you four beliefs. Fedoras are awesome. Any chance I get, I wear a fedora. And quite frankly, if a woman picks up a fedora, I have more respect for that woman. Moving on. <laughs> Pretend it's a city. Uh, wandered the New York City streets and fascinating mind of wry writer, humorist, and raconteur Fran Leibowitz as she sits down with Martin Scorsese. So my boy Rob Lemley, he watched all seven episodes in three and a half hours, which is either a 
testament to how much he liked it or just how lonely and sad his life is on a Friday night. But regardless, he powered through three and a half hours of Fran Leibowitz. And I applaud my man, Lem, because I can't do that. I Listen, she has done this before, meaning working with Marty. Uh, I believe it's called Public Speaking, with Scorsese's documentary about Fran Leibowitz over a decade ago. So he's been friends with her for a long time. And this is an extension of that. This is Fran Leibowitz just, you know, walking around New York City, giving her observations. And I got to be honest, I, of course, adore Marty. We all know that. Uh, I like seeing Marty pop up in the movie. He's interviewing her, but it's obviously not about Marty. He is just the vessel to telling Fran Leibowitz a story. However, his laugh is easily the best part of the film. Like, if we could just bottle up Martin Scorsese's laugh, uh, that would be a great thing for all of us. But essentially, just letting Fran Leibowitz talk and talk and talk and talk. And yes, she's really smart. Uh, I think she's perceptive. And she's funny at times, but I also find her grating, obnoxious, an elitist, arrogant, and therefore, I don't know if I'm going to get through all seven episodes. I'll be completely honest. I watch two episodes and I go, okay, I got it. She's the really smart woman in class. She's smarter than everybody else. She's got a little blazer on. She's like Gloria Steinem for a new age. She would probably cut me down to pieces and make me cry in about 10 seconds because I'm deeply insecure. But I don't want to see her musing about life. There's amusing moments, again, enhanced by Scorsese's laugh. You know when a joke isn't that funny, but you hear somebody laugh and they have a great laugh and you laugh? That's what happens. There's a couple of times I'm like, well, the story wasn't great, but Marty's laugh is so good, I end up laughing as well. Uh, but I'm sure there's others who are going to like this more than me. I just thought I would give it a, uh, you know, a passing by. Uh, what's it called? Not a pass by. A drive by. A couple episodes. It's seven episodes. It's on Netflix. You can all check it out. Pretend it's a city. I watched a couple. I don't know how many more I'm going to watch. Joe, did you watch it? You saw a couple episodes just like me. What'd you think? Yeah, I also watched two episodes, and I can't, I, can't, I couldn't agree with you more because it. Although she, I mean, she's so smart so quick with the joke i think she's truly the embodiment of what new york city and living here too long can do to someone you know she's uh, a little guarded uh cynical a little neurotic you know but while i'm watching and let me know what you think i'm just thinking the whole time this is so niche and catered to someone people who have not only lived in new york but have lived in new york for an extended period to really understand what she's talking about, that this might just go over the heads of a lot of people across the country. Do you kind of get that vibe too? That's a great synopsis, Joe. I, while watching, I said, okay, this is definitely for New York people. Like they, they keep making jokes, but the fact, you know, they got to go to Brooklyn. And uh, you know, having lived in Brooklyn, I believe you still are there. You were in Bedside before. But if you go to Manhattan to Brooklyn, it's like going to a different universe, right? Like she makes a joke about it. Marty was like, we got to go to Brooklyn. I'm like, oh my God, that's like, might as well go to Afghanistan. Like, are you kidding? And just about the fact she doesn't have a car, she's always walking, she doesn't have a phone, et cetera. And I'm with you. Like, you have to really appreciate the life. And neurotic was the perfect word. The n- neurotic New Yorker, uber smart, urbane, perceptive, but also blunt, opinionated, never been wrong, stubborn. Like, this is, along with all the adjectives that are positive, a lot of negatives that go with it too. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I don't know if I want to hang with Fran Leibowitz. Like, I think I would take five minutes. I would do it just to see Marty, obviously. I would do whatever Marty told me to do. But I don't know how much I'd enjoy hanging out with Fran Leibowitz. Um, But I do appreciate that Scorsese is such a fan of hers. She did tell one joke. I saw this in The Hollywood Reporter. She said they've been friends a long time. And she goes, to give an insight into Marty, one time we were talking, he said, God, I just, I wish Taxi Driver was better. It's just not good. And she goes, what do you mean? She goes, he goes, the problem is the, the color red. He goes, they wouldn't let me get the red right. And I was trying to desaturate it at times. And when you watch me, the red just isn't good. That's why it's not a good movie. And in the Fran Leibowitz inimitable manner, she was like, Marty, shut up. What are you doing? It's great. It's a great, great movie. It's brilliant. It's a classic. Shut up. Get over yourself. Why do you care about the color red? And then, of course, Marty would start laughing. So I'm like, that, that I could see is definitely their relationship. He's hard on himself. She feels great about herself. <laughs> and back and forth they go. Uh, one quick thought here on Night of the Hunter. So it was on TCM. God, what a double bill. Are you kidding me? Out of the past, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, Night of the Hunter. 
It reminds me as a kid growing up, I'd watch TBO, Saturday Night at the Movies, L.E. Yost hosting. Anybody who wonders if I was lonely or <laughs> isolated in high school already just got their answer by the fact I just told you. That was my ideal Saturday night. Not to, I'm not boozing here playing the spin the bottle down with all the... With all the cool kids. I'm like, oh, hey, wow. On the waterfront and a streetcar named Desire, I'm in. Uh, and so many years later, now, of course, with kids, and once I can get them to bed, I go, oh, my God. I am, nothing's getting me more fired up than Night of the Hunter on a Saturday night. You know, there's no football this Saturday. And uh, I just love the movie, man. God, it's so great. So Charles Lawton is the director. He's a great actor. No less than the only three-time Best Actor Academy Award winner ever, Daniel Day-Lewis. One's called Charles Lawton, one of the best actors ever. He thinks Charlie Lawton is a huge influence on him. This is the only film that Charles Lawton ever directed. It's called Night of the Hunter. It came out in 1955, and it stars Robert Mitchum. And Mitchum, as you've heard me talk on the podcast, one of my favorite actors. And the story appealed to him because it was the way that he saw the South. Mitch actually grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but lived in the South for a little bit of time. And as his sister told Ben Mankwitz, and Mank said this, by the way, on TCM on Saturday night, he said this was the way Mitchum saw the South. It was a lot of hypocrites and, um, what was the exact word, religious zealots who were up to no good. So Mitchell goes, okay, I can do this. And his acting style was one of understatement. You know, when he passed away, um, Scorsese said, there wasn't film noir. Robert Mitchum is film noir. And that's what Out of the Past is, which came out, uh, I can't remember the exact year. I want to say late 40s. That was the, the first part of the double bill I mentioned. Him and Kirk Douglas. Great, great movie. Freaking great movie. Um, so that's like more of the Mitchum performance, right? He was underplaying, heavy hooded eyes, barrel chested, obviously very handsome. But in Night of the Hunter, it's a little bit atypical. It's like when Mitchum was like, okay, I'm going to go broad. I'm going to go um, not quite hammy, but a little bit overt and a little bit broad at times. And it's, it's so funny because, you know, if you say to somebody, what's Harrison Ford's iconic performance? You say, oh, okay, Star Wars or, you know. Uh, Indiana Jones, that's his best performance. If I said to you, Mitchum, you know, arguably his best performance is Night of the Hunter, but it's a very atypical Robert Mitchum performance. You go, what do you mean? You go, well, it, it's not what we'd expect from him. Normally he was underplaying and very kind of modest. And here he's clearly relishing the opportunity. But it is kind of a quintessential Mitchum performance in that he's playing a bad guy. And Mitchum, as always, was so seductive and so sinister. And I think Roger Ebert, I'm sure in his testimonial about Mitchum once said, he goes, he was so cunning and just so seductive. You know, he's just a handsome guy who had a lot of charisma, very charming, and yet he had this devilish look about himself. I mean, there's one scene, I texted Rogowski where he says, he's taunting one of the kids, don't you give me a little bit of impudence, boy. And he goes, look at the look in his eyes. Because Mitchum was like 37 when he did this movie. Uh, I've done all this without even telling you what the plot is. The plot is that he's a preacher who's a ne'er-do-well. At the first season, you see him, he's on a horse talking to God, but he is not a religious man. He is just using the cloak uh, as a way for his evil. He, in prison, hears a guy talk about the fact he's got 10 grand hidden away. That guy gets executed. He goes and looks the guy up, and he starts hitting on his widow, Shelly Winters, and tries to find out where the money is. And, uh, of course, Shelly Winters has two kids. What's great about Night of the Hunter is that Lawton ended up making the movie through the kid's eyes. So it's like one of the great, not quite, it has noirish tendencies, but it's a really great thriller. It's suspenseful, but it's also a really great movie about kids and seeing the world through a child's eyes. 
And there's a real kind of melancholy to it. Like these kids, they lose their father. Spoiler alert, Mitchum kills the mother. And then they're on the run. They're like literally floating down the river. And Mitchum's a psychotic preacher screaming about God and Jesus and the Bible. And he's trying to get the 10 grand, which was Rogowski's point, by the way, because I love the fact he's going to all this length for $10,000. I'm like, wow, it was 66 years ago. Back then, 10 Gs was, uh, you know, like 100 Gs. or Not to that extent, but you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, it's like through, through the child's uh, lens. And there's some, God, gorgeous. The fact that Charlie Lott only directed one movie. How does this happen? And Mankiewicz was telling this on TCM. He said the reason why is the film was actually a bomb at the box office. And critics didn't jump on it right away. And now it's viewed as one of the best films of the 50s. You know, one of the great films of the century. And uh, because it didn't get that reception, Charlie Lawton didn't direct again. So he's known as a great actor. But that's the one movie he directed. And it's a classic. And Mitchum was never better. And it's 95 minutes. And it's awesome. And I have the Criterion Edition on DVD. Shout out to my friend Mark Calmanici, also a big Criterion guy. But you can definitely find it on TCM sometime. So for Maple Leafs, of course, Night of the Hunter, Joe. It's an all-time classic. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've never seen it, and I haven't heard of it, but it sounds fascinating. And um, hearing you talk about it and how it's through the eyes of a child, it kind of reminds me uh, uh, um, of a darker To Kill a Mockingbird in a way, because that's kind of done through the child's lens. It's in black and white. It, it, would, you, would you give it this fair comparison? And after you answer, I have a proposal to you for a Mount Rushmore. Yeah, you know what? It is almost that. To Kill a Mockingbird is like one of those great dramas, right? Courtroom thriller. Atticus Finch is the model of decency. There's no Atticus Finch in None of the Hunter. It's just Mitchum. Like, it's just the villain chasing down the kids. So there's no real, like, saint-like figure as in To Kill a Mockingbird. But what is very similar is the southern landscape, that kind of gothic feel to it, and uh, the childlike nightmare. So yeah, there, there's some comparisons. It's not... It's not as much as you might think, but there's a little bit of element, primarily the setting. I would say, yeah, they're both in the South, both in the 50s. Colin Mockingbird, I want to say, is 62. Now the Hunter is 55. But go ahead. What was the Rushmore you wanted to do? So what would you think about doing a Mount Rushmore of movies that were initially critically panned, but then became beloved and people recognized how great they were after their the release oh yeah i love this i feel like yeah i feel like this movie would fit that mold maybe it's not on your mount rushmore but i think that that could be a fun mount rushmore for later on oh it's on the rushmore i already got two for you right now i'll put that and i'll put scarface scarface just made a modest amount of money at the box office not much made back their budget they're all right Critically, got drubbed, and it's one of the all-time greats. I love this idea. We also, I, I forgot, we still had that idea for the Mount Rushmore Dustin Hoff movies. So no matter what, we did get that guest who wanted to get that in there. So Mount Rushmore of, uh, of Dustin Hoffman next week. This week we're doing Mount Rushmore women's revenge movies in honor of Promising Young Woman. All right, those are my reviews. To recap, Promising Young Woman, Pretend It's a City, and the one that I really want everyone to watch. In a perfect world, everybody would just say, you know what, stop asking what's on Netflix. Go watch None of the Hunter. It's so awesome. To the original badass, Bob Mitchum. Coming up after the break, entertainment news and the Mount Rushmore of female revenge movies. Well, big news, of course, Larry King passing away. Suspenders sporting every man who's broadcast interviews with world leaders, movie stars, and ordinary Joes helped define American conversation for a half century, uh, dying at the age of 87. Longtime nationally syndicated radio host. He won many honors, including two Peabody Awards. It was a fixture, right? Nine o'clock Eastern on CNN. You had to watch him. 
And I keep thinking about the interview I have on VHS with Al Pacino. Pacino never does interviews. He never went on with Letterman, never went on with Leno, never went on The Tonight Show. But Larry King and him were buddies, relatively speaking. So he once did an hour, and it's like the greatest interview I've ever seen in my life. And I don't even know if Larry King was that great in it. It was just so great to see Al talk. And now you see him talk a little bit. There was a GQ conversation he did with Bob De Niro when The Irishman came out on the featurette to The Irishman. Shout out to Rick Passmore, who bought me The Irishman on Criterion. There's an, obviously that roundtable conversation, which you've all seen on Netflix with Al, Marty, Bob, and Joe Pesci, but very rare to just get Pacino going. And Larry King literally was asking me every question. Tell me about uh, drugs. He overcame drugs, alcohol abuse. Tell me what it was like um, growing up without a father. Basically, his dad was not around. You know, Basically, you were raised by your grandparents, your adoration of your mother. Tell me about Attica. Tell me about Serpico. Tell me about when Coppola fought for you for the Godfather. I mean, it was... Awesome. At one point, he actually asked about the scent of a woman, and Pacino like pretended like he was blind. It was like, oh my god! Like he goes, I just I never saw when I was making the movie. And he goes, look, and he actually did it the way he looks as Colonel Frank Slade in the movie. And it's like he goes, my eyes just were not focusing, so I'm doing it right now. I can't see. I'm like, oh my god, this guy's the best. So when I heard of Larry King dying, I said, I gotta go pull out that VHS tape and then go up to get a VHS machine and go watch this interview. I'm sure I can find it on YouTube. Um, he was also known for getting guests who were elusive. Again, I mentioned earlier, I'm a big Sinatra guy. Rarely gave interviews, often lashed at reporters. He spoke to Larry King in 1988. At one point, Larry King said, why are you here? Sinatra responded, because you asked me to come. I hadn't seen you in a long time to begin with. I thought we have to get together and chat. Just talk about a lot of things. Very cool. Chairman of the board. King often parodied, including old age jokes from guys like David Letterman and Conan O'Brien, oftentimes though being a part of the joke. Joe, you're a young guy. You're in your early 30s. Larry King at CNN 9 Eastern was before your time. What do you think of when you heard Larry King died? Oh man, I, I thought another another legend that we lost recently. I, I put him at a level like Alex Trebek, where he was just such a fixture for a lot of Americans for years. He had such a disarming style in his interviews. He and now I'm just trying to think of who who fills the Larry King void. I can't think of another interviewer who is who who is famous for interviewing that who's not a late night host. Can you think of anyone? I can't. I, you know, listen, I used to think Charlie Rose was a terrific interviewer, and then obviously his uh, uh, behavior was abhorrent, and that's why he lost his job, uh, You know, caught up in all the Me Too garbage that he was doing. But I used to think, listen, if you can put that aside, I thought Charlie Rose was a terrific interviewer. Um, in sports, you and I are sports guys. I think Dan Patrick's a great interviewer. But there's no one really like Larry King who cuts across all different genres. Um, like I think Colbert's a good interviewer. Do I think he's Larry King? Of course not. It's, it's very, very rare. I can't think of anyone who has the I mean, listen, maybe Howard Stern. Howard Stern's a pretty great interviewer. I think everyone knows he gets after it. He will attack uh, subjects if need be, but he's also very disarming. Uh, he'll get guests to open up and they know that you got to play ball. If you're talking to Howard, you can't expect not to be asked about your sexual proclivities or, you know, whatever kind of stuff Howard's into. He's going to ask you that. I think the best guests get that. So I would, I would say Howard Stern, I think is a great interviewer, but Larry King's kind of a, a name unto himself. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Howard Howard Stern has definitely built up a name for himself, not just through his radio show, but through his interviews. And and Larry King, just to be able to do it for that long, I think it's something that we all aspire to, is just to have that much success that consistently over that amount of time. He's a real model for everyone who's in this business. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, Also, trailers for the latest 007 movie, No Time to Die, been all over the internet since late 2019. The actual release has slipped from April to November to April of 2021 and now slipping again October 8th. Think about that. A year and a half past the film's scheduled premiere, the 25th installment of the James Bond saga, now scheduled for release October 8th. I believe Dune is now going to be October 1st. So, God, man, I cannot wait to watch this movie, but they just keep pushing it back and back and back. So, 
Everyone kept saying, right? Hey, once we get to 2021, maybe once we get to the winter, once we get to the spring, summer, okay. They're saying now, once we get to the fall, I feel like we should be good. October 8th, God willing, we can all go see the latest James Bond film. A couple of little tidbits here. My man, Ben Mankiewicz, I just shouted him out on TCM. This is really cool. I read this in The Hollywood Reporter. I wanted to pass this along, especially because Joe is a big fan of the movie Mank. Ben Mankiewicz, TCM host and grandson of the eponymous Mank, was brought to tears just from seeing the title card of the Netflix movie. He was born 14 years after Herman Mankiewicz died, but the name still holds weight for Ben and his relatives. The word Mank was uttered, I don't know, 81 times in the film. Nearly every member of this family has been called Mank. It was legitimately a surreal and moving experience. The film follows Herman Mankiewicz's career, his work on the script of Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, but some aspects of the movie were altered, Ben says, to enhance the narrative. The 1934 race for governor was not a significant part of my grandfather's life. The filmmakers used that, I think, to demonstrate his seriousness about other issues. Director David Fincher's actor Gary Oldman did capture, however, an intangible aspect of Mank's nature, his warmth, and his spirit. Since he didn't get to meet Herman, Mank's grandson says he thought of his late father, Herman's son, Frank. I wanted to ask him if he could see his dad and Gary Oldman. My real strong sense, based on the way my father described it, was yes. Though he views the movie as a wonderful experience for Ben, it wasn't about the cinematic legend behind Citizen Kane. I saw less about who wrote the movie, Mankwood says. It was my grandfather. It's more about the story of a Hollywood writer whose self-destructive tendencies ultimately got the best of his brilliance. I wanted to pass that along from uh, one of my favorites in broadcasting, Ben Mankwood's of TCM. Sound of Metal was one of my, it is my favorite movie of last year. It was one of Joe's top five. Great article with Nicholas Becker. He's the sound editor and designer. I read this also in The Hollywood Reporter. This is crazy. They have a chamber where you hear absolutely nothing. That After five minutes, you can start to hear your heart beating, your blood pressure. You hear the hiss in your ear. This was at the Paris Institute for Research and Coordination in Acoustics slash Music. When you lose your hearing, your eardrums are not functioning anymore. Your body continues to feel the sound, and your brain constructs some things which look like sounds. You can have a similar experience when you're underwater. Your eardrums are not functioning, but the tissues and the bones transmit the vibration directly to cochlea. That work informed the film's sound design, which aims to mimic as close as possible the way deaf people get sound through their body. In addition to using sound captured during filming, from birds to cars, Becker recorded a range of additional material, all of which was processed to create the final experience. He also recorded Ahmed's inner body sound with a range of microphones, including a stethoscope mic on the actor's chest, a geophone mic on his skull, and a waterproof lavalier mic in his mouth. The concert music was recorded live during the shoot for which Ahmed learned to play the drums to give a feeling of raw truth, almost documentary. The sound designer then created a 100% naturalist version of the sound and 100% subjectively processed version to be able to easily create the right arc with different levels of hearing loss for Ruben. When you ask it to separate these three elements, sum them up again, you get something very weird, like a Frankenstein sound, a bizarre sound that puts you in the uncanny valley. This is when he had the tonal content, transients, and noise. We put up all the sounds of these sequences where Riz hears through his implants, and we treated them all with this process. We also kept a non-altered version of the sounds in order to create a mix between the two, especially to be able to pass from one to the other. A lot of this may be over to your heads, but I'm telling you right now, my man Joe as a sound engineer is losing his mind right now, giddy after that description. Isn't that cool, Joe? I I can't believe what I'm hearing. That that the detail, the detail, Adnan. If he doesn't win the Oscar this year for sound, I'm going to. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a petition. I'm going to knock on doors. But uh, that that's absolutely incredible. I had no idea. I figured that they were trying to get as close as possible. But the fact that they went to this lengths to where they had, they had a mic inside of his mouth to get bodily sounds like that is absolutely 
absolutely insane. It's so cool, Adnan. Yeah, I, I agree. Of everything I just read, I cannot get over it. The stethoscope mic on his chest, a geophone mic on his skull, and a waterproof lavalier mic in his mouth. That is, that is next level. Uh, before we get to the Mount Rushmore, this is a disturbing story, but I feel like it is timely in that we were just talking about um, promising a woman. And like I said, men behaving badly, men behaving with criminal behavior. And Johnny Depp is a guy I've always liked him. Listen, Donnie Brasco, love that movie, love him and Al together. Pacino always said one time, you know, youngish actors, who does he most admire? He goes, oh, I love Johnny Depp, he's great. And obviously my brother loves Pirates of the Caribbean, who doesn't love Edward Scissorhands, yada, yada, yada. But he's had more than a few missteps, and his personal life has been a disaster. And lately, his movies have been awful. Anyone else want to go watch Mordecai? Yeah, that's what I thought. He's had some huge bombs. And now, in fact, even friends like Jerry Bruckheimer, who had him in Pirates, they might be saying, listen, Johnny, I can't help you out here. Your career is in serious peril. Listen to this story. This is awful. The stuff with him and Amber Heard. This is from The Hollywood Reporter. Among the lowlights, the text from Depp to CAA agent Christian Carino, who previously repped Amber Heard, in which he wrote, Heard is begging for total global humiliation. She's going to get it. I'm going to need your text about San Francisco, brother. I'm even sorry to ask. But she sucked Elon Musk's crooked dick, and he gave her some shitty lawyers. I have no mercy, no fear, not an ounce of emotion or what I once thought was love for this gold-digging, low-level, dime-a-dozen, mushy, pointless, dangling, overused, flappy fish market. I'm so fucking happy she wants to fight this out. She will hit the wall hard, and I cannot wait to have this waste of a cum-guzzler out of my life. I met fucking sublime little Russian here, which makes me realize the time I blew on that 50-cent stripper, I wouldn't touch her with a goddamn glove. In another text to actor Paul Bettany, Depp writes, let's burn Amber, to which Bettany, apparently taking it as a joke, responds, having thought it through, I don't think we should burn Amber. She's delightful company and easy on the eye. Plus, I'm not sure she's a witch. We could, of course, try the English course of action in these predicaments. We do a drowning test. Thoughts? Depp adds, let's drown her before we burn her. I will fuck her burnt corpse afterwards to make sure she's dead. Hollywood decision makers may be less forgiving in light of the UK trial's copious drug references, cocaine, alcohol, Xanax, Adderall, Roxicodone, magic mushrooms, and ecstasy. Depp had been earning 20 million plus upfront payments in the major studios, all increasingly risk averse. But now when studio heads said simply, you can't work with them now, he's radioactive. You think about a fall from grace, Joe, what Johnny Depp has gone through, it's unfathomable. Yeah, this is, radioactive is the right word. This is, uh... He he does not mince words in his in his uh, criticism there. That, that I mean, dude, this coming out. Do you even think he has a career after this, or do you think anyone would hire him in Hollywood because of this? What the article actually makes clear, which is disturbing, is that kind of like Trump, like no matter what, he's always got his supporters. Like the Johnny Depp fans will support him no matter what. They'll say, well, Amber Heard was abusing him as well, and it was mutual, and like they'll always search for rationale. But I, listen. If Mel Gibson can work in Hollywood after all the crap he's done, then everyone gets a second chance. Robert Downey Jr., you know, went away for cocaine problems, et cetera. But can Johnny work? Sure. Maybe he can get some indie movies or some, you know, offshore financing. I don't know. But like a big budget tentpole movie? I can't see it, man. This guy, listen, the court basically found him guilty of beating his wife. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know how you bounce back, man. That's, uh, it's a pretty sad story all around. And I remember at one point they were saying, well, guys, I think he was charging her with abuse of him and. It's just messy, man. Whenever stuff like this gets messy, it is, uh, it's awful to see. But I, I read that and I said, you know what? I, uh, I can't believe my eyes, so let me just go ahead and relate to this audience. And I'm sure right now all of you are in need of some eye drops because that is, that is some tough stuff to read. All right. Uh, that's your news. Let's get to the Mount Rushmore of women's revenge movies, and then we'll close up shop here. No guests this week. We're working on a couple of big guests for next week. 
Mark Simon texts me, do you have good guests coming up? I'm like, listen, Mark, we always have great guests. You think I'm going to tell you who the guests are? Come on. The whole point is you're going to listen every week. I know you're a loyal listener. I'm not gonna... If I tell you we're getting Johnny Depp on next week, it's not going to matter. You're listening anyways. So yes, we have good guests coming up. All I can say is one of the guests is a real badass. All right. There's your hint. Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore women's revenge movies. Good list. Kill Bill, baby. I'll cheat and go volume one and two. If you ask me to be specific, I'll go with volume two. Volume one, I thought had more great action, you know, like a truly, you know, Asian Hong Kong movie. Uh, Two, I thought had more of Tarantino's signature dialogue, but I love them both. We'll, We'll just call it Kill Bill. I mean, Uma Thurman just kicks ass. Revenge and all these guys who have wronged her. Awesome female revenge movie. I will also go with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Frances McDormand getting another shout out here. Uh, as we've said before, she was uh, channeling John Wayne in that character, a woman who is uh, vengeful for good reason. After her daughter was raped and murdered, she will not stand until there's justice, whether it's from Chief Willoughby, Woody Harrelson's character, or whomever. She wants to get to the bottom of things, and uh, she just owns the screen. I think Stalman Louise is pretty great. I'll be honest. When I saw it as a kid, I was maybe 13. I was kind of like, yeah, I don't really understand why this is such a good movie. I've seen it again, and I can appreciate it is, again, pretty badass to use that theme. Uh, Gina Davis, Susan Sarandon, entertaining. And the ending, very controversial for its time. They just uh, go off into the cliff, but I like it. I like things that are, you know, I was going to say open-ended, but I'm pretty sure they don't survive. But I like movies that kind of end, how about this, with a cliff, a cliffhanger. So uh, Thelma and Louise, I think, is pretty good in that respect. That leaves us with one more. I kind of want to go with Fatal Attraction, but what the hell? Joe's big on De Palma. We love De Palma here on the podcast. I'll go with Carrie. You know, once Carrie gets revenge after a period and she's bleeding in the shower and she takes on holy hell and gets everybody at the prom, that is about as good as uh, revenge as a dish best served cold. I'm going to go with Carrie as my final choice. So the Mount Rushmore of women's revenge movies. Shout out to De Palma's Carrie. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri from Martin McDonough. I'm also including Kill Bill from Quentin Tarantino and uh, Thelma and Louise. Good movie from 1991. I believe Carrie Hurry wrote the script. I believe she was either nominated for screenplay or actually may have won the Oscar. But those are my four. Joe, you're going to give a shout out to the First Wives Club or maybe the girl with the dragon tattoo. Ooh, I do love the girl with the dragon tattoo. I, I've never seen the First Wives Club, so I, that's definitely a blind spot. I have to keep watching <laughs> on my list. I, w- I would not call it a blind spot. I have unfortunately seen it. You don't even have to watch <laughs> Bette Midler and Company. My mom wanted to watch it. It's a long story. You don't need to watch it. You're good. All right, cool. I'll take your word for it. Um, no, I will do Fatal Attraction then, just to bring it full circle, because uh, Tara Ma- uh, McNara's review said that Promising Young Woman could do uh, what Fatal Attraction did to cheating and make men think twice. So I'll do that just to bring it around. Um, also, I'll back you up on Kill Bill. Volume 1 and 2, I love them both equally. I guess I'll do Volume 1 if I had to pick one because you're doing number 2. Also, I'm going to do True Grit, but not the 2010 version. I rewatched that recently, and I remembered it being a little bit better. So I'm going to go with the 1969 version. Uh, but then my last one, Just Like You, It's Carrie. That's the ultimate female-led revenge movie. It is, it, it, it is crazy. 
I, I, can't, I can't say anything more about it. The the scene at the end with the blood at prom is so, so good. My for a carry, kill build, true grit, and fatal attraction. Nice. Listen, fatal attraction is going to be in there. It's a, a glaring omission by me. So I like your list better because you included it. You think of female revenge, you think of uh, Glenn Close boiling some bunnies. Also, one other thought here on Mank I wanted to mention. One Easter egg for classic film fans, TCM host Ben Mankiewicz, Herman's grandfather, voices the announcer at the Academy Awards. If you watch it again, you will hear Ben Mankiewicz's voice, which is very, very cool. And one other thought here on Promising a Woman, uh, if you're a fan of Paris Hilton, The Stars Are Blind, that song figures prominently in the movie. Maybe if you don't like that song, now you're not going to watch the movie. But regardless, there is an amusing moment where that song does come to fruition. Uh, as always, thank you for checking out Cinephile. I appreciate all of your support. As always, you can hit me up on Twitter, CinephilePod, or Adnan S. Furk. Next week, uh, like I said, we got a couple of really good guests lined up. So uh, lots of great films right now coming down the pipe. Support us. Tell all your friends. Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. And I'll see you at the movies. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.